turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, should be, or um, there's an insert in your bulletin with a text on it. So here on 8.1, we come to 8.1, which is not only the halfway point, but is the pivotal chapter in Mark's gospel. This is the climax of the first act as the disciples finally begin to realize or understand exactly who this person is that they've been following. As we age physically, our ability to see goes. Our vision declines over time. Our eyes get tired. They aren't as sharp as they once were. This can eventually become, of course, extremely dangerous, extremely burdensome, and for some it can lead to even total blindness. The disciples have been walking with Jesus for eight chapters now in Mark. They've been hearing Him speak, watching Him heal and do amazing signs and wonders. They've had access to Him that nobody else has had. And yet their spiritual vision is getting increasingly dim. Their hearts are getting harder to the truth of God being revealed in Jesus. To the point where they're not even learning lessons that a child would have understood by now, but it's not because of their age. It's not because they were dense or stupid men. Their inability to grasp and embrace the person and teaching of Jesus is a spiritual issue, a spiritual one. If this was not only a possibility, but was an actual issue for those that walked with him and talked with him, how much more are our hearts in danger of hardening to the truth? Of Jesus over time. How much more of a threat is this to our spiritual eyesight? Spiritually speaking, we're of course subject to just how the passage of time might dull our passion and our understanding, but also to how the dwindling of that passion and desire for Jesus and His truth may harden our hearts to our increasing need for Him to not just be our Savior, but also to His authority over us as Lord. So we might see as believers, but we don't see just yet. And we need His healing touch on our souls, beloved. We need Jesus to constantly clarify our vision by the power and light of His Holy Spirit so that our hearts do not become hard to His grace as our Savior or to His will as our Lord. So let's pray and we'll begin. Father, For your name's sake, for your glory, your renown, your worth, your value, and your lordship in the lives of everyone that is gathered in this room today, please overshadow my mind, fill me with your Holy Spirit to preach your word, enable everyone to hear and to believe, and I ask for this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Read the first ten verses of Mark chapter 8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. 
and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So once again, just like in Mark chapter 6, we find Jesus concerned for the people since they are hungry. And by placing this second miraculous feeding in the region of the Decapolis, in the context of his interaction with the Gentiles, Mark implicitly is affirming that that invitation to the messianic banquet of Jesus is not for the Israelites alone. It's for all people everywhere. But the flow of Mark's narrative or in the flow of his narrative, it's the misunderstanding of the disciples that comes to the forefront here. We've been Mark's been teasing us with it in the last few chapters. Now it's at the forefront. Look at verse four again. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? How in the world could they make the same mistake again that they made when Jesus was about to feed a crowd of more than 5,000? How can they ask the exact same question in light of what they had seen and in light of what they knew about him? You would figure that watching Jesus multiply five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish for over 5,000 people would be stuck in your mind. You wouldn't be able to forget it. You wouldn't be able to just leave it out of your mind. You would think that immediately when that crowd and you hear Jesus say, I'm concerned for them that they're hungry, they would have said, well, do what you did before. And yet they, they don't. They ask the exact same question they asked before. They're talking as they have no idea what Jesus might be able to do here. And Jesus will, will respond to them so similarly to the way he did in chapter 6 that their lack of understanding is even more Shocking when we read it. He literally repeats the same process that he did when he fed the 5,000. Their regression has been ongoing. We know from 652, we know from 718 that their hearts were hardening. But again, now it, it's, it reaches a climax here in their shocking inability apparently to even re- remember what Jesus could do. Feeding over 5,000 Hebrews was one thing. I think that may be what's going on here, but Jesus doing the same thing, pouring out the same blessing in a predominantly Gentile area, that was probably a shock to their senses. You mean you're going to be for them what you are for Israel? Surely he won't do that for these people, they might have been thinking. How does he react to hungry Gentiles? Well, he feeds them. Such is the worth and the sustenance of Jesus' word for people that's being demonstrated in his provision of bread for them, But the disciples don't understand. And what we have to notice as we continue here is that Jesus will not identify their misunderstanding, again, as a matter of intellectual inability. It's a matter of spiritual resistance to who he is and what he's teaching. We pick it up in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. So Jesus had apparently returned to Jewish areas, probably on the western side of the Sea of Galilee now. And the Pharisees approach him just as they did after he fed the crowd of over 5,000. And they come here to argue with him. The word means they're out to challenge Jesus. They want to instigate him. They want to harass him. They're not there to have a friendly debate. 
They're being hostile toward him. They want proof. They want, as they see it, proof of his divinity, the one big sign that will end all the questions. But everywhere he's gone, he's healed the sick. They had seen that. He's preached the word. He's been doing amazing miracles that authenticate his claims to divinity, to be the Messiah. And they continue to reject him. And remember, they think that he gets the power to do these things from Satan himself. They think, or that's the extent of their misunderstanding. And Jesus, it says, sighed deeply in his spirit. The Greek there indicates it. Don't think of like, right? Or that even he sighed heavily. He has reached his limit with these men here. The text is telling us he's sick of this from them. And so since they faithlessly asked for another sign, yet another thing, he told them he'd give them no sign at all. Beloved, when Jesus has made himself clear, to continue to doubt him is not just a sign of weakness. It's a sign of rebellion. Eventually, we must believe the word or we must reject the word. But to keep pretending as though it's not understandable is not acceptable. But the Pharisees here, they represent the present generation of unrepentant Israel. There, remember, God has shown priority and they reject Him. While the Gentiles get the crumbs from the table and they embrace Him. So Jesus left the Pharisees, went to the other side of the sea, and in verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them. Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now, leaven, of course, is a small amount of yeast that is added to bread dough to make it rise. I really am preaching to the choir there. Right, So the metaphor is that even a small amount of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod would infect their whole spiritual understanding as the disciples of Jesus. But they thought, they literally thought that Jesus said what he did about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, who Herod is brought in here because, remember, Herod will also ask for a sign from Jesus. But they think he's brought up the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod because that's an enigmatic way of chiding them for forgetting to bring enough bread. Verse 16. And they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. What would you discuss? Right? How does it become a discussion? They probably had a business meeting to form a bread committee. That's, that's what you do we got to have a committee here. This was their pressing concern, the bread. The bread issue probably came up because they got hungry and Jesus is discerning their hearts. The potential for our pressing concerns, the concerns we have that we recognize, even when they're legitimate, like being hungry, the potential for our pressing concerns to overshadow the truth that Jesus has for us is what's being demonstrated here. When our hearts are hard to Jesus, we will not hear his word properly. The minute they felt hungry, they were unable to discern the truth. They were unable to prioritize correctly because of their felt needs and their felt desires. They miss his point entirely. 
They start talking about how to make sure they remember to bring enough bread in the future and assign who's responsible for this. Probably somebody probably had to make a motion that they had forgotten the bread in the first place, and then it needed seconded. It's it's funny in the Southern Baptist Convention, which which is where I originally came from. There's actually at the General Assembly, there's a committee on committees. And here's what's so great about that. There's a resolution committee that monitors the decisions of the committees that have also gone through the committee on committees to make sure everybody's being committee-ish enough, right? (laughs) And somehow we've convinced ourselves that this is necessary. You just cannot conduct business unless you just load it down with so much red tape that it makes the government's face turn red, right? Verse 16 is almost comical, but it's, it's not funny because Jesus is in the boat. The verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? How many times has, have we heard Jesus say to the crowds, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now it's his disciples that hear with their ears and see with their eyes, but they don't understand. Just like those of whom Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, that Jesus referred to back in Mark 4, 11 and 12. The truth of Jesus is not necessarily easy to reject in the sense that it's weighted with so much divine authority and truth. There's no logical reason to reject the truth of Jesus. So if it's being rejected, it's likely that there's something inside the person hearing him and seeing his works that is keeping them from understanding it. Jesus is asking them in light of what they had seen and heard specifically, how could you not get what I'm saying? How could you take me telling you to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod as as a clever way to remind you that you all forgot to bring bread? As though they're, they're, notice that they're making the exact same mistake they made earlier in chapter eight and that they had made earlier in chapter six. They're thinking, what are we going to do if we don't have bread? And Jesus is sitting there and now he's done it Twice, he's multiplied bread for thousands upon thousands, two times. And they're thinking, what are we going to do? We don't have any bread. This is why when we begin to think, yeah, we've heard this, we've heard this, we've heard this. We haven't heard it. We've heard it, but we haven't heard it. Right? How do you forget these things? How do you forget these things? How do we forget these things? He's not unaware of what their spiritual problem is. He's trying to get them to see it. He even asks in verse 18, very specifically, do you not remember? Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? They did remember. They just didn't believe. They, they remembered that it happened. It just hadn't penetrated their hearts at all. 
What was there to affirm for them? They had seen it. They know that he can provide bread and they remember the baskets of leftovers. What is the problem? Beloved, do not underestimate. Do not underestimate the power of spiritual blindness. Our Lord is calling to us in the midst of our lives with him where we constantly pretend or refuse to remember what he has said, what he has done, what matters. So often because Jesus is not serving our agenda or has not done what we wanted or is revealing the hardness of our own hearts and we're openly resisting him. When they got into the boat, Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. That's why we have verse 15. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He cautioned them. They were setting their minds on the things of men, not on the things of God. The provision of bread that Jesus has been making doesn't really have anything to do with bread. Literal bread. Jesus had shown them. He's showing Israel. He's showing the Gentiles. I am the bread of life from heaven. I will supply your needs. I am the Messiah sent from God. In Matthew sixteen twelve, he records in this instance that the leaven of the Pharisees to which Jesus refers was their false teaching. The leftovers in these miracles had to do with Jesus' ability to provide not just food, but the truth, which no one else had the power to do. But they heard the word bread and or leaven which has to do with bread, and immediately thought of their stomachs rather than the truth, the moment rather than eternity. Just like the Pharisees who would hear God's word given to them plainly, no tricks, and twist it to serve their own desires or reject it altogether. Jesus tells them or is telling them to beware of misapplying the word of God even when you have the benefit of his constant presence, as they did. Remember, blessed were their eyes to see what they saw, and blessed were their ears to hear what they heard in Matthew 13, 16. Jesus is saying here, in essence, don't squander my word. Don't squander my presence. Don't twist the word of God from heaven to suit your own desires. Don't reject what he reveals clearly is true. But still, even still, there's hope in this rebuke. If you see it, he uses the word yet twice, once in verse 17, once in verse 21. So they will understand. Jesus will open their eyes. It's just taking time. And so, okay, we have the next verses. We pick it up in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Bethsaida was a fishing village located on the northern side of the sea. Jesus didn't have a very high opinion of Bethsaida. He had said in Matthew 11 that, if he had done the mighty works there that he had done in Tyre and Sidon where he's just been, where he healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, healed the man who was deaf and mute, they would have repented a long time ago. Bethsaida, however, rejected Jesus. And Jesus said, it'll be more tolerable in the final judgment for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you in Bethsaida. They rejected him. 
One commentary says that the leaven of the Pharisees had been thoroughly kneaded into the hearts of those in Bethsaida. But this time, when Jesus arrives in Bethsaida, a blind man is brought to him, and the people that brought him begged Jesus to touch him. And once again, Jesus does touch him, but not immediately to heal him. But as we saw earlier in Mark 7, with the deaf and mute man, to to lead him away, to take him aside, out of the village now in verse 23, away from unbelieving Bethsaida. It's odd that Jesus does this. And he's done it twice in the last two chapters. All in the context of his disciples' hard-heartedness. Jesus spits on his eyes as he had rubbed spit on the man's tongue back in chapter 7. Lays his hands on him. Does what his friends requested. They touched him. When Jesus touches people, he's letting us know he can be touched Right. Now notice this again in the text. This is extremely odd. He asks the man if he sees anything. That's very rare. In fact, it's, it only happens here. Jesus doesn't ask the person he heals how they're doing. He knows he's made them fully well. But here he does. And look at verse 24. And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees Walking, So this man can make out forms of things is what's going on. And apparently he'd been able to see at some point in his life because he knew the difference in form between trees and people. But he says he sees people, but they look like trees walking. So what is the issue? He sees, but he doesn't see. Even though Jesus has touched him. Verse 25 again. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now the man, at the second touch of Jesus, is completely healed, can see perfectly, no blurry vision, impeccable eyesight. This is the only time in the New Testament when Jesus performs a miraculous healing and it doesn't happen instantly. Why is that? Jesus didn't need to use spit He doesn't need to touch the man, period, let alone touch him twice. His word can heal. Again, we've seen from even a distance, such is the extent of his authority. But what are his batteries low? Is he he running out of power here? What's happening? He's teaching his hard-hearted disciples and beloved. He is teaching us that we will continue to need the touch of Jesus on the eyes of our souls, in order to see Him clearly. They've walked with Him and talked with Him. They know things. They know things other people don't know. They have some spiritual insight. But spiritually speaking, the disciples at this point see men like trees walking. It's blurry. That's what verses 14 through 21 revealed. Well, what is the cure for this? What is the cure for spiritual blindness? How do we resist the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. How do we get clarified vision? The ongoing touch of Jesus whose provision for us never runs out. Jesus healed this man in stages to show his disciples that their progression towards spiritual understanding is gradual, so don't abandon him. Don't take your eyes off of him. Don't take it for granted that because he's with you, you understand everything that you need to. 
Don't be infected by the leaven of false teaching. That apparently will depend on the extent to which we keep beholding Jesus and the truth that resides only in him revealed to us plainly in his word. Keep believing Jesus and he will make you see. Up to this moment in their spiritual development, if somebody would have asked one of the disciples who Jesus was, what might they have said at this point? Well, to use the tree, and you know, he's, he's, a, well, he's a mighty oak of a man, but, but exactly who he is, we're just, we're just not sure. But now after the clarity he's given, in verses 22 to 26, look at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the anointed one. Right? That's what that word means. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Jesus and his disciples travel about 25 miles due north to Caesarea Philippi. On the way, they're thinking and mulling over what Jesus had done for the blind man, apparently. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Verse 28, they told him John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others one of the prophets. So there were some who thought what Herod did. We found out back in chapter 6 that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others thought he was Elijah or one of the other Old Testament prophets reborn. But then Jesus asked the real question in verse 29. But who do you say that I am? Our answer to this question is the most important thing about us. Who do you say Jesus is? Peter answers him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Mark's version of this conversation that we have here is much shorter than Matthew's. In Matthew 16, since Mark's point here is just recognizing who Jesus is Seeing him clearly, Jesus had kept teaching them, kept touching, and Peter sees Jesus' identity clearly. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of heaven, the son of the living God. And beloved, that's what matters more than anything for the disciples. That's what they need to grasp, just who he is. If that is settled, then eventually all the other pieces will fall into place as God wants them to. In verse 30, Jesus reveals that Peter is right. But it's not yet the time for the disciples to spread the word about his identity. Not just yet. Jesus doesn't want to encourage a military movement against Rome because of his popularity, which we know from John chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000. That's what would have happened. But also, there's still more to understand. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. That's the Christ, the Messiah. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wait a minute. Tony, you said Peter could see. I thought Peter could see. I thought the scales were finally off, and now he knew who Jesus was. Beloved, he did. 
He didn't know who he was, just like most of us in this room know who Jesus is. Peter could see, but Peter couldn't see. Once it is clear who Jesus is, it must also become clear what he came to do. And that will require his ongoing touch. The ongoing healing touch of his word on the eyes of our souls. Peter could... Why, why, why does... Why do we need... Why did the disciples need the ongoing touch of Jesus? Because the Messiah sent from God came to suffer and die in the world we live in. That's not easy to embrace. Because to know him is to be identified with him in his suffering. Peter could see and accept his identity. But there's still hardness in his heart. And he wasn't ready to embrace the agenda of Jesus as his own. That he wasn't willing to submit to and couldn't understand. Up until this moment in Mark, Jesus had not revealed his true purpose or goal in coming. That he must suffer and die. And notice the word Jesus uses is must. He must do it. It was a divine command to which he had to submit and obey in order to be our perfect Savior. Remember, if Jesus only comes to the earth but doesn't die for us, that he might rise for us, our faith is worthless and we are still in our sins. His must is the command of God for the sake of our souls. Peter didn't want his Lord to die. He didn't want his Lord to suffer. He didn't want his Lord to be rejected. That's noble. We can understand that. But even good intentions for Jesus are evil if they cross purposes with God's will for him or for us. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Yeah, beloved, we don't do the saving. We don't protect Jesus. We don't live our lives to save Jesus from anything. We don't keep him from being who he was sent to be in this world. We get on the Calvary Road and follow into his death for sinners. Or we're aligned with Satan himself. Mark's narrative takes a decisive turn here. As it becomes crystal clear that the role of the Messiah of Israel is to suffer and die for his people. The king who brings the kingdom is going to be crucified. That's the design. Jesus has said this all plainly in verse 32. Mark makes effort through the Holy Spirit to tell us that nothing about this was foggy or misunderstood. And Peter is still blind to it, even though Peter can see Jesus for who he is. Jesus called Peter Satan, not because he just committed some heinous evil or horrible immorality, but because Peter was setting himself in front of Jesus on the road to Calvary. When Peter heard that, he took him aside. We, Jesus takes us aside to heal. Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke. This is how blind we are. Even those who know who Jesus is still have some of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod in us. 
Peter still needed the touch of Jesus. He still needed his presence. He still needed his word. And beloved, so do you and I. The reason Peter is called Satan here is because he was setting his mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. Well, we do that all the time. I didn't know that was such a big deal. It's a big enough deal that Jesus will say to you, get behind me, Satan. In his church, when you set your mind, when we set our mind on the things of man, on the things of us, rather than the things of God, he would rebuke us the exact same way. That is what Satan does. That is what the devil does. We think again, again, he's crawling around in the dark, speaking in Latin to everybody. No, 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 no. No. He's getting in the way of our ability to see Jesus, beloved. And we don't even know it because our minds are set on the things of man, not on the things of God. That's such an insane impulse that we would have the nerve to rebuke Jesus. It's Satan that would seek to keep Jesus from his purpose. It's Satan that would deny what Jesus came to do. And by undertaking to keep Jesus from dying, Peter was not doing something noble to protect Jesus. He was joining forces with Satan unknowingly to keep Jesus from doing God's will. What makes Satan Satan? Beloved, he sets himself against the things of God. That is satanic. And as long as we think that's just when you play rock music backwards, beloved, that's the essence of the devil. The word goes forth. Satan steps in the way. Satan turns his back to it. This is what that snake and liar and murderer has done from the beginning. Did God really say, that's why we're here? He is a powerful foe, beloved, and we're no match for him. We're no match for him. We need rescued from the influence of Satan in our lives. Not through all the things the enemy has convinced us Satan is dealing in. And he's, I'm sure he's dealing in that too. But, beloved, it's, it's, it's when he gets us to ignore what's in the word to serve our own desires. We're on his team. Right? It's not neutral. It's, it's never neutral with Jesus. Right? The essence of the devil is to set himself against the things of God. So beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Do not set yourselves against the things of God. If he's doing something, if his word is working, do not get in the way because your stomach wants bread. Beware wanting Jesus to be something other than who God sent him to be, or we will reveal ourselves to be the children of the devil. Beloved, we see, but we don't see. We see, but we don't see yet. We see men like trees walking in our spiritual lives. We, we don't yet see perfectly. Your, your Christianity, your, your relationship with Jesus must never reach a point where you hit cruise control. Right? It, it's not about whether or not you're saved. It's that you can never reach a point where, where you, you just take his grace and your need for him for granted. 
That's what worldly things do to us over time. That's how fleshly things affect us or infect us over time. Why? Why can't we? For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. First Corinthians 9 or 13, 9 and 10 and 12. In other words, we will need his healing touch on the eyes of our souls until he returns. Now, there's never a time when that verse is not in the present tense. Now, beloved, you and I know in part. Only then will we see perfectly and be perfect. Only then. So don't set your sights on becoming perfect. Set your sights on Christ. Let Him do the sanctifying. We all need Jesus to keep spitting His Word on our eyes. And touching us. Taking us aside. Giving us sight until He's revealed from heaven with the glory of the Father and all His angels. That's when we can... Have perfect vision. We see, but we don't see, beloved. We're all in different places. We're all affected in our spiritual eyesight by different things in different ways. We get things, but we don't get things. We're blinded by our inability just as humans to grasp the depth of divine truth. Absolutely. Some things are just too deep for us to understand. But Jesus is not warning us about such things or his disciples. That, that's not what this is about. It's not like if, if, you just, if you just go to seminary, if you just read the Bible more hours, then you'll, you'll get past this. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's warning us of how our own hearts are led astray by even the smallest drop of what is untrue. Even if our intentions for him are good. So many of us set out to do something for the Lord. He didn't ask for. He doesn't need. We just want to do it because it makes us feel complete. And then when somebody steps in the way of that or isn't as thrilled about it as we are or doesn't want to do what we want to do, what do we do? We get mad. And when Jesus says to bear with one another and be patient with one another and forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you, mm-mm, no, 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 no. No, no, no. No, they, they, they stopped my thing. They canceled my thing. They didn't let me do my thing. Right? They didn't like what I did. They, didn't, they, they weren't grateful enough for what I did. They didn't recognize what I did. You have turned your back on Jesus to go the way of the devil. God's word is clear. There's no ifs, ands, or buts here. I don't have to be patient with them. Yeah, you do. I don't have to forgive them. Yeah, you do. And right now what I hope is happening is that the weight of those commands, because they're commands and they must be obeyed, is crushing you because you know you can't obey Him. You're thinking of people right now you cannot forgive. You're thinking of situations right now that if somebody takes that from me, if that stops, if that ends, I can't worship. I'm not going to... Beloved, Jesus is in this boat. Jesus is here. Nothing we think is hidden. Jesus is here. He's warning us that until He comes, 
we're going to need his touch to keep seeing clearly. In other words, we must live by faith in Christ. Now. Now. We need to realize something crucial here or we're going to go the wrong way. We're going to put our focus in the wrong place. Matthew tells us in his account of this story, the gospel writers are just doing different things, so they include different things. They have different purposes. Matthew tells us in Matthew 16 that Peter was only able to come to this proper realization of who Jesus was by the grace of God opening his eyes so that he could see it. When Peter makes his great confession in Matthew 16, 17, Jesus says to him there, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't figure it out on your own, but my Father who is in heaven. Beloved, our ability to increasingly see the truth of Jesus clearly like we need to so badly is dependent on God revealing him to us miraculously. So what do we do in light of this text? We pray for his grace to keep opening our eyes. Lord, take away my blindness. Let me see. Help me. Help me. We must constantly repent of our own hard-heartedness even when we don't know it's there. Beloved, we're safer when we assume we need forgiveness. Not in a way that paralyzes us. Don't stop believing the gospel in this. Don't start believing it because you don't see everything clearly. You're not saved. No, 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 no. God would have us see the truth more clearly than we see it now. If I'm not dead, that's not done. If he hasn't returned, that's not done. So this message is the same for every person in this room, including me. The longer we walk with Him, the more we will need this. Our hearts on their own get harder, even when you're with Him. Right? If Jesus physically sat in a pew here on Sundays and walked through our week with us, our hearts would still harden if left to themselves. If God doesn't do a miracle of revealing Him to me, I'm not going to see, and I have to see. Or my faith will prove to be false. This is where Moundsville Baptist Church is, beloved. This is where we are. Beloved, we know Him. Right? I'm not... We know who He is. The job of a preacher is not to convince people that they're not saved. Alright? We we know Jesus here. this, This church is filled with wonderful people that in many ways live out the fruits of the gospel all the time. No question. No question. I've never said that until I'm here. And I don't think it was that it wasn't the case before. I think I couldn't see it before. But God keeps opening my eyes. That doesn't make me better. It reminds me of my ongoing blindness, right? That I I couldn't see before how kind God's people were, right? So we see. We see. But, beloved, we don't see. Not yet. We get things here. We get them. But we don't get them yet. Right? We know who He is. We believe and confess who He is. Again, we do many good works here. The people are wonderful here. But we still need the healing touch of Jesus. We're not there yet. 
And again, if we're not dead or he hasn't returned, I could preach the same sentence in 50 years. There are places we as Moundsville Baptist Church specifically need to grow, need to mature, need to soften in our hearts. There are things in us that need to mature so that we're not setting ourselves against this purpose but are fully submitted to it. That's the Christian life. Keeping our souls by God's grace in a posture of dependent prayer and eager expectation at the feet of Jesus to touch us in our blindness and in our need. That's what the church is. Bringing our friends to Jesus so that He can heal them. Having them bring us to Jesus when we're blind. Help my friends see. That's the church. Help my friends see Jesus. If we can't see Him clearly, we won't be the church. We'll be something else. We probably won't shut down, but we won't be a church if we don't continue to see Jesus clearly. If we don't understand His purpose as God reveals it for us, His identity as God reveals it, it will eat away at our very foundation. And we're here to make Him known to the Ohio Valley as fishers of men, remember. Not as keepers of an aquarium, right? I've said that before, probably. We need Jesus to constantly clarify our vision by the power and light of His Holy Spirit so that our hearts do not become hard to His grace as our Savior or His will as our Lord. We as a church need to get on our knees and pray for God to give us sight all the time. Everything has to be on the table. Lord, have your way with it. Everything. Don't set yourself against the things of God by setting your mind on the things of man. We see, but we don't see yet. Not perfectly. And who Jesus is and His mission are a little cloudy for us right now. Right? We're here to reach this community. And if we keep thinking that's done by just inviting them here, we better hope that they like everything about us. Because we're not changing it, right? That's, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. We must die to our own personal agendas to embrace the grace and the Lordship of Jesus. We must pray for the grace to change or we'll keep passing right on by those in the community that need us. The blind will be brought to our door and we'll turn them away because we've set our mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. So, Lord, please open our eyes. Amen.